during the time of the judges, God chose to use two women to shape Israel's history. And they couldn't be more different. Deborah was a powerful woman with influence. She became one of the judges in Israel and was referred to as a prophetess. She was a take charge kind of a person. Deborah, make no mistake about it, was a force to be reckoned with. She was an exceptional leader. Contrast her with Hannah. Hannah, well, she was not. She was a disenfranchised, marginalized person who was bullied for years. And yet Hannah would change the course of history. And all I can say is never underestimate the power of a praying mother. Amen. Hannah made a vow to the Lord. Our text says in 1 Samuel 1.11, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son. How many times is she going to say the word servant? How many times when we pray, the tone of our prayer is we're in charge and we're given orders? But give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord. All the days of his life, no razor shall touch his head. Now, at first glance, you may read this passage of Scripture and say, well, Hannah is bargaining with God. She's simply saying, hey, God, if you'll do this for me, then I will do this for you, as if there's some kind of quid pro quo relationship here. But that's not her approach at all. One, I want you to remind you that she was not asking God for a son to keep. She was asking God for a son to give. She would raise this child through its infancy, would wean this child, and would take this child to the temple and give it to Eli. Now that's a whole other story. After looking at the way Eli's sons turned out, I'm not sure I would want to take any of my children to him to raise. But she would take that child to Eli. And there God would use this young child in a remarkable way. She's not praying for her will. Now she had an affliction, she had a problem that drove her to the, her knees. But she was not praying for her will to be done. She was praying for God's will to be done. She was praying that God would give her a son that would be set apart. He would take the vow of the Nazarite. He would be set apart, wholly dedicated to God. You see, she was praying as she looked around her society and saw that she was living in an age where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The days of the judges. And she wanted to be part of the solution. And she said, Lord, give me a son and I'll give him back to you. 
She was praying from the bottom of her heart for God's will to be done. In verse 20 it says, And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now we're going to come back to Hannah's prayer in a moment. But before we do, I want to just briefly mention some highlights from Samuel's life. He was a transitional figure. He was an important figure. In fact, he had a front row seat to the history of Israel. During his lifetime, he confronted a priest, the man who raised him. During his lifetime, he confronted a priest. He anointed the first king over Israel. He helped transition the king, uh, the, the nation, from a time where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, a disorderly chaos to an orderly monarchy. He then confronted that king when he was disobedient. He anointed another king who was a man after God's own heart. Samuel lived a remarkable life. And for the next seven or eight weeks, we will be following his life through the scripture as our summer series. And you'll hear different members from the teaching team expositing God's word to help you understand not more about Samuel, but more about God. A God that steps in, a God that intervenes, a God that makes a difference in people's lives. And all of this started with a prayer of a would-be mother. Let's rejoin the narrative in verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Now here's an insightful priest, huh? He's in tune with what the Spirit of God is doing. And Eli said to, he, to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, notice her gentle reply. No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord, pouring out my soul. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. She didn't say it, but she could have, like everybody else does. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. 
She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Don't regard me as a worthless woman, she said. Hannah was devalued. She was devalued in her culture because of the fertility issues that she had. And her husband's other wife taunted her and bullied her because of her condition. I'm not saying that she had a few bad days. The scripture says that Paniah provoked her for years. Now, Hannah's husband loved her, and he showed her preferential treatment. He didn't see her as worthless at all. But God was not showing her favor. God had closed her womb. Look in chapter 1, verse 5. The text is clear here. The root of her problem, the source of the reason that she was being teased and bullied mercilessly, came from the hand of God. The source of pain was her rival taunting her was the constant reminder that her disappointments in life came directly from God's hand. Now, I want to be very quick because I know that many of you have stopped thinking about Hannah and you're thinking about your own life. Your pain could be directly from the hand of God, but maybe not. I remind you that sometimes bad things happen because, well, stuff happens. Sometimes they happen because we live in a sin-soaked world where evil runs rampant. And then there are also the times when we experience something bad, but we look back on it in retrospect and say, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am today without that, right? And then there's the time when it's from the hand of God. None of these other options describe Hannah's situation. When you think about the thing that you're thinking about now, was God there? Was God watching? Look up into his face. Is there a tear running down his cheek? Mary and Martha had a bad day. They said to Jesus, if you would have been here, Lazarus would not have died. How many of us have said that to the Lord? Lord, if you just would have been there, if you just would have stepped up and intervened. Lord, where were you? Because in that moment, there's a, 
a fissure in our theology while we understand that God is everywhere. There's no place where he's not. The scripture says, even if I descend into Sheol, you are there. Our theology of a loving, caring, merciful God goes haywire when we think that he was there in the midst of that horrible moment. And didn't stop it. And didn't intervene. When that moment comes, we face a black and white choice. We can trust in God or we can blame God. Now, I don't have eyes to see what God was doing in the moment that you've been thinking about so far in this sermon. But I do have eyes to read the scripture. And I know that at the tomb of Mary and uh, of Lazarus, in front of Mary and Martha, that before he raised him from the dead, before he intervened, the scripture says he wept. He wept. Hannah was experiencing pain from the hand of God. And that pain drove her to prayer. Now Eli saw her praying. He thought she was drunk. Eli, he was a tragic figure in the scripture. His sons, he didn't discipline them. They were abusing their position. In fact, during this time, the priest as a whole, as a, as a group, were not being effective. They were not stepping in and confronting the people in the midst of their sin. And when Eli, though, decides to confront a praying woman, now that takes a man, doesn't it? She responds, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit, but neither drunk wine nor strong drink but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Hannah's response to understanding her pain was from the hand of God, was not to blame God, but was to rush to the temple and pray. We have that choice. I have faced it. Have you? She ran to the temple and she prayed. She poured out her soul. Now, contemporary preaching the way we normally do things when we get to a phrase like this is we start talking about the Hebrew word for this is that. Or, or we start microscopically trying to tear it apart. You know, that's, that's like trying to describe a sunrise scientifically. Sunrises are not to be analyzed. They're to be experienced. 
pouring out your soul. What does that mean? What does it mean to pour out your soul before the Lord? What does it mean to go to the altar and when you turn away, you've left nothing? You're taking away nothing. You've poured it all out before the Lord. All your doubts, all your fears, all your joys, all your pain, all of it, pouring out your soul. It's an interesting phrase that appears elsewhere in the Bible, and it always appears with people who are under great distress. When prayer is pushed beyond the ordinary and the routine, Job Chapter 30, verse 16 says, Now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. Job didn't run from the presence of the Lord and blame God. And by the way, what he received was from the hand of God. And when his wife said, curse God and die... He says, am I only going to receive good things from the hand of God? He poured out his soul. Psalm 42, David wrote, as, my, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have long been my food day and night. His only nourishment, his tears. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? He had his own paniah, didn't he, taunting him. Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. When David wasn't connecting with God, when his soul was parched, when it was withering away, in that moment when he felt distant from God, when his only comfort was his doubting friends. In the spiritual desert, he had a memory of walking with God, but he did not have that as his current reality. His soul was throbbing. Ever hit your thumb with a hammer? Hit the wrong nail? His, his soul was throbbing within him. He was aching. He did not feel connected. You know, sometimes when we think about this concept in church, we ask the question, well, who moved? Wrong question. You see, that moment where we lose connection 
drives us to pour out our soul. You see, there comes a moment where the source of the affliction is no longer what we're praying about. We're not asking God to take away the pain. We're reminding him that we need his presence. So we pour out our soul to the Lord. David was desperate for God. He was not desperate for God's blessing. He was desperate for God. And we will never move from praying to pouring until we're desperate for him. Until we come to the point, keep your blessings. I need you. I need you. To put it another way, there is no room for God in our life until we've poured out our souls. Until we've emptied our ambitions, our preferences, our uniqueness, you know that I've got to be me, our pride, our abilities, until down to our core, there's nothing left. We've poured it out. God does not take residence in your soul in the guest room. And sometimes these trials and these afflictions come from the hand of God. to connect with you. But then again, it's really not about you. For Hannah, it was about Israel. It was about God's people. They needed a prophet. They needed a priest. They needed someone that would lead them to King David, a man after God's own heart. You see, this wasn't about being bullied and being taunted. It wasn't about whether she was childless or not. It was whether or not God's kingdom had a leader that it needed. And that leader in the formative years of his life needed to be trained and cared for by a godly woman who realized that was not her son, that was God's son. And he was not there to take care of her in her future. But he was there to take care of the nation and to lead them in a mighty way. But we do have another example of what it looks like to pour out your soul. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, he's speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Therefore I will divide him among a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for our transgressors. Boy, if that's not a verse that takes you straight to the cross, I don't know what is. 
But there's a slight detour on the way to the cross. You know, we talk about Jesus shedding his blood at Calvary, and we do that all the time. And we miss mentioning him shedding his blood at Gethsemane, don't we? At Gethsemane, in the garden, he poured out his soul. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Of course, his disciples didn't. I believe that the soul pouring that Isaiah prophesied about took place in the very next verse when he said this, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. There was the source of the pain. There was the agony, the crucifixion, the moment that God would turn his back on his son, the moment where he who knew no sin became sin. That cup, that moment that spiritual and physical agony. And yet Jesus ended that prayer by, not my will, yours be done. Father, take this away if you can, if you will. My will, no. Your will. See, that's what happens when we pour out our soul. Our Lord exemplifies the attitude we have. And it is this. I will go through the pain as long as I'm in your will. We know that uh, God makes good out of horrible things. He certainly did at the cross. And who knows but that he will redeem our pain whether it's directly from his hand or indirectly is not really the point. The point is that when we come to these moments, these soul-shattering moments, we choose not to go down the path of blaming God. Instead, we trust God and we pour out our soul before him. And we pray until we can pray this final line in Jesus' prayer. Not my will, but your will. You know, most of the time, prayer is just in the background of our lives. Apostle Paul teaches us to pray without ceasing. And many of us who practice the presence of God in our life all the time, noticing God moments all the time, from the simplest thing of seeing a sunrise that I mentioned a moment ago and think about our Creator, to the profound moment of holding your spouse's hand and being grateful that she said yes. to seeing in the midst of trials that our children are going through and seeing God stand up. Sometimes 
It's not the moment of impact that is debilitating. But the constant reminder of the moment. And in all of those moments, all of those moments, we're reminded that God is there. Sometimes prayer is deep, sometimes it's not. Sometimes prayer is ceremonial. Sometimes prayer is a blessing that we give to someone else. Sometimes prayer is when we come alongside someone else in their pain and we bear their burdens. And then other times, we're desperate for him. I long for those moments. I'm also afraid of those moments. I feel like the little child at the edge of the swimming pool. And mom or dad are saying, jump, I'll catch you. And I began to wonder, God, can I really trust you? If I leave it all here, if I pray in such a way that if you don't intervene, I understand I will fail. If I leave nothing on the table, if I pour out my soul before you, Lord, can I trust you? And I have a, an answer for you. No. You can't trust him to do your will. Yes. Yes, you can trust him to do his will. What are you praying for? Because if you're praying in his name, if you're praying according to his will, your prayer will be granted. You know, that's the problem with prayer. Is whenever we, we forget that he is the master and we are the servant, that he is the creator and we are the created, that he is the all-knowing God and we are the sinful person. When we forget that and we're sending off our order to DoorDash and we expect him to come and maybe if he comes through quickly we'll tip him well. He is sovereign. We are not. And so Hannah poured out her soul. I'm not saying that every day this is what your prayer life needs to be. I don't think we could handle it. But there are times when nothing else will do.
And when life is pressing in on us, and when the disappointments are crushing us, we have a choice. We can trust in Him, or we can blame Him. Let's pray together.